that home is, it's really your, your soul. It's, it's like a homing device. He says, we are sent forth and drawn back by the same force. And, you know, he describes it as the, the deep homesickness that you can sometimes come to feel in this, you know, space between the two halves of life. So it just, that really, that really struck me as like, it's just like you're, you're being called home to yourself. If you're standing on a threshold, if you feel a yearning to tap into your greatest potential, but you're caught in that fuzzy in-between space of the now and not yet, don't despair. You're being invited to pivot with greater purpose. You're on the thrilling edge of becoming. You are being called to unleash your soul song. I'm Becky Fleischer, and I believe we're all born with a gift that's uniquely ours, our very own soul song. And I discovered on my own journey that when we unleash it into the world, man, does it make life sing. You might express it through writing, science, cooking, nursing, teaching, or some other endeavor. The song is different for each of us, and its expression can change throughout your life, but it can only sing when you're in tune with your truest self. I know you're trying to get things in focus, that you're looking for encouragement and practical tools to illuminate your own personal journey, and that's what you're gonna get here. I'm excited to travel this road with you. Let's get going. Welcome back to another episode of Unleash Your Soul Song. It's Becky Fleischer, your host. I am so blissed out right now, so happy right now, because I just wrapped up the most soul-filling conversation with two of my dear friends, Jocelyn and Pam, who are on today's show to discuss the book, Falling Upward, A Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life by Richard Rohr. You may recall from one of my early episodes when I talked about the first band that I was in and how I considered them my musical family. Well, these two ladies were my musical sisters in that band. And thank God they remain my soul sisters to this day. So let me tell you how this whole show came to be. Several, several months ago, after I recorded one of those early episodes, I think it was O Shift, What's Happening, where I talk about liminal space, I had just recorded that, and the three of us were hanging out in the studio, making some music, and we went down this spiritual rabbit hole, as we're apt to do, and I started telling them about the episode and what I had been learning about that threshold of liminal space, where you're suspended between the now and the not quite yet, and I told them about this book and how it helped me put some contours on this particular time that I was moving between the two halves of my life. They decided then and there that they were going to read the book. It just resonated with them so much. I think we're all in a very similar space in our life. And so they just grabbed on with both hands and said, oh, you know, we definitely want to read this book and it's, we can't wait to talk about it. And I said, you know what would be really great? Let's talk about it on a podcast episode, because I really thought more people might be interested in this book, and maybe you're already familiar with it. And if you are, you'd probably just enjoy hearing a conversation about it. I know I couldn't wait to talk to somebody about this book when I read it. So if you have read it, I hope you enjoy this. If you haven't read it, I hope this gives you some idea of what the book is about and if it's for you or not. But what's really interesting about the timing here is that we had originally planned to record this episode last November, so November 2020, but we had to postpone. 
And with the holidays and the new year, it just kind of took time to get back into the groove. And so when we finally decided recently that we were going to record the episode, I have to tell you, between the time that we set the date and the time that we recorded, which was only a matter of a few days, this book came up in two different conversations that I was having with two completely different people. One was someone who knew about it and wanted to know if I had read it, and one who didn't know about it, and I was recommending it to her. And when I told them that I was getting ready to do, like in just a few days, I was getting ready to do this book talk for the podcast with my two friends who read the book, they were both so excited. And they were like, oh, I cannot wait to listen to that episode because one had read the book and couldn't wait to just hear other people's perspectives. And the other one was so excited to read the book. And so she was excited to kind of have this companion to go with her reading experience. You know, I don't believe that there are any coincidences anymore. So clearly, the energy is right for this show to be hitting right now. So I am so thrilled that I can share this conversation with you between three soul seekers and three soul sisters. Let's jump right in to our book talk about falling upward. Jocelyn Gruber and Pam Hervey. I'm so excited to be with you guys tonight to do this book chat on falling upward. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Becky, for having us. Thank you for having us. So let's give our listeners a little bit of context since we know each other so well and we know our backgrounds, but the listeners don't really know anything about us. I think they probably know a little bit about me, former project manager that I've worked as a consultant and worked in the White House, had kind of that type A, very head-driven life for many, many years until recently in the last five years or so that I've been kind of shifting to a more heart-centered and a different kind of pace here in my life. But can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves and how many kids do you have? What's your life like these days? And what's your background and where are you coming from as you read this book? So why don't we start with Jocelyn? Thank you, Becky. Sure. So I am currently a stay-at-home mom. I have a 14-year-old daughter and a 16-year-old son. Becky and I became friendly when our kids were in nursery school. Um, My background includes art. I was an art history major and I worked at, at Christie's Auction House and then I worked at an art consultancy firm and then I worked for a family privately. And once I had my son, I stopped working and I find my days filled in so many various ways these days, but I have, I don't know, what is it, about eight years ago now, revisited my musical side. I grew up doing musical theater and I have been exploring music as my passion and as my primary hobby that doesn't really pay me all that much, (laughs) but I enjoy doing it. Awesome. We can all relate to the not being paid very much. With the, with the, I like you said primary passion. I like that. I like that too. Because you do have many passions. I do. So Pam Hervey, tell everybody about you. I am also live in Westchester County. I have been a stay-at-home mom for oh, t- 21 years now, believe it or not. I have a 21-year-old daughter and an 18-year-old daughter and uh, have been at home with them doing lots of volunteer work. More recently, uh, playing lots of music, including with these two lovely ladies. I worked for probably about 15 years in engineering and finance. I was on Wall Street, and then I worked in the telecom industry in finance and management. What else can I say? Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah. Perfect. 
Wonderful. All right. So I just want to acknowledge up top that this book that we're going to talk about today with everyone is by Richard Rohr, who I have referenced before on the show. And I will reference again on this show because I, I just love him so much. And I find his work to be so compelling and comforting for my own personal journey. And as I talk to other people who've also been on this kind of journey to the edge of becoming, you find people who have read Richard Rohr, who follow Richard Rohr. He definitely helps people through this kind of space. And so, you know, acknowledging that he is a Catholic priest, I do want to say that the book, though, is really accessible to people of no faith backgrounds or any faith background. And so I just kind of wanted to point out quickly, again, just for reference of our listeners, you know, I was raised Catholic. My husband is Jewish. My kids are Jewish. So I have a, a different perspective on religion and perhaps a, an openness to it that I maybe wouldn't have anticipated in my younger years, but have embraced certainly in my adulthood. And so I just wanted to know from your perspective, what is your background and kind of where do you stand? Just so as we talk, people have an understanding of how we're interpreting the book. And I'm curious to actually to see if we interpret it the same way, because I know we have some similar and some different backgrounds here. So Pam, what is your faith background? I was raised Catholic as well, and I, uh, my husband is, I guess he was raised Presbyterian, but he's, he's always been, I want to say more of a non-believer, I guess, a believer in something, but not necessarily a particular God, mm-hmm. the way that I was brought up. I have kind of lost faith in organized religion, and I have stepped away from it as, you know, after my children were born and as their lives, you know, our, their lives have gone on. But I did send both of them to um, a Catholic school for um, middle school and high school, because I feel that there are so many important messages in Catholicism that come through the faith that deal with recognizing that we're all citizens of the world and that uh, we all have a purpose. And no matter what happens to us, there's always someone who might be more in need than we are. And that it's sort of, you know, our job, the more that we're given, the more that is expected of us. So I, I would say that Catholicism still does the sort of basic tenets still play a big part in my life, but just not the organized part. Yeah. Yeah. I relate 100% to that completely. I always say I'm very grateful that I was raised Catholic. I'm glad I had that foundation and I wanted some foundation similar to that for my children. But like you, you you get disillusioned, which we're going to talk about. That kind of comes up in the book. So we're definitely going to get into that. So Jocelyn, could you tell us a little bit about your faith background? Sure. I was raised in the Jewish faith. My husband was baptized in the English church. We are raising our children as Jewish and we celebrate the Jewish holidays and we celebrate Christmas and we celebrated Easter when they were younger. And I find that my faith is very strong. And I think that comes with age as well and tying it together with the book, it's something like I'm turning 50 in a couple of years, and I feel like my spirituality is only getting more compassionate and more encompassing of the world and the people that I meet. Um, What I do think is that this world is really hard, and it's even harder when you don't have some kind of faith, whether it be 
Christianity or Judaism or something else that you can say, hey, maybe there's something else going on here that I don't understand, but there's a reason for it. And I find it very helpful. And so it wasn't really a matter of what my husband and I were, but it's something like there's got to be something to help us in this world. Faith. Yeah. Beautiful. I hope that the listeners now can hear why I wanted to have this conversation with the two of you because you're so articulate and and you can speak about it so beautifully, but also so honestly. And I think that this is a conversation that a lot of people have quietly with their friends and then it's harder to have a little more publicly. And so I just, I'm so appreciative for you guys to come on and, and to talk about this. And so let's jump into the book because Jocelyn brought up the good point about, you know, where we are demographically in our age group, somewhere in like the kind of 40 and above number here. And so the the name of the book, you know, Falling Upward is really talking about the two halves of life. And this comes from Carl Jung, who's a Swedish psychoanalyst. He's the one who first coined the term. And it's really about, you have the kind of this first half of life where just like Pam was saying, and Jocelyn, you said the same thing. And I feel the same way, you know, you need some kind of structure, something to help you build this container. And that's, he talks a lot about in the book about building the container in the first half of life. And so the rules and the the doctrine and the dogma, all those things can kind of help build that container. But then there's this moment when you can, although I think he points out, you don't have to, and not everyone does, you cross this meridian into a second half of life period where you're looking to fill the container. What do I fill this container with? So I I just, I loved him. The whole premise of this book, I just loved because I feel like very much that's where I am as a person. And so I'm just kind of curious, how did the title strike you? I know we kind of came upon this title and we were having a conversation together one night. So Pam, you were just sharing with us why why you picked this book up. So why don't you kind of share that story with the listeners? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause this is, this has been a real life changer for me. And I thank you. I thank you for steering me this way, Becky, you know, being almost an empty nester, I have a child who's, you know, in her third year of college, one on the way out the door in the fall, I was definitely kind of part of the sandwich generation. Whereas my, my, my kids were growing up. Um, my father passed away and my mother became a very big part of our lives for for 15 years and she passed away in 2017 but for the last 6 years of her life she wasn't well she was ill and i had you know i was very involved in her care and being an only child that 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 kind of was that was my my honor and my job i suppose but you know she passed away and at this you know a year later my younger daughter my older daughter graduated from high school and moved on so it's this big sort of big like sort of cosmic transition is happening in my life where i've i've i'm kind of done being a daughter and mm. i'm coming to i mean you never stop being a mom but i mean i'm kind of coming to the end of that intense phase of mothering that we all go through from sort of zero, you know, to 20 or, and, um, and so as I navigated that, um, you know, the last couple of years, I've just felt really unsettled, you know, and feeling like, okay, you know, what comes next and how do I go 
how do I go look for it or do I go, I go look for it. And I, and again, this has kind of been, this has been going on for a couple of years, but it wasn't until Becky and Jocelyn and I were together, I think last September, and we had a conversation and Becky brought up the term liminal space. And I said, well, what is that? You know, and she explained it as, and I just, I just pulled Richard Rohr's definition. He said, those threshold days where transformation is happening, but we don't really know it yet. And, you know, liminal space is in between something that was and something that is to be. And it happens to people, you know, in their lives. It happens to people. And for immediately, it was like I, ha I felt this big rush of relief, weight of the world off my shoulders, because it was validation. It was validation yeah. like, oh, it's okay, because maybe I'm supposed to feel this way. And it was giving it a name. That um, so I was eager to really dive into the book, you know, based on that conversation we had. And so it was really it was it was very to read. It was very freeing. It was very validating and it was very comforting. And, you know, I can now just say, OK, I'm in this liminal space and something's coming and I don't know what it is, but it's OK and yeah. I'll figure it out. Yeah, I I am with you 100%. I remember when someone recommended this book to me. I was in the exact same space mm -hmm. and someone it's it's like a little gift when someone recommends yeah. this book to you right at the right time yes. because it does exactly what you just said. It puts a name on it and for the first time you're like, "Oh, wow, I I'm not crazy. I, I'm, I'm not, not losing my mind." Losing my mind. <laughs> Yeah, this is an actual process that people go through. It's it's natural. And, you know, like we touched on before, sadly, it's not a process that everyone goes through because you can deny it. I mean, you don't have to you don't have to listen to it. He says in the book, he calls like basically crossing the meridian into the second half of life. He calls that the further journey. And and I have a quote here that I love that he says, he says, the further journey usually appears like a seductive invitation and a kind of promise or hope. We are summoned to it, not commanded to go, perhaps because each of us has to on this path freely with all the messy and raw material of our own unique lives. Right. So you have to go freely and it is an invitation, which you can deny. You can like totally not take the invitation. Right. So, you know, the book won't be for everyone, but if it's sounding like, oh, wait a minute, I'm catching on to what they're saying. It probably is for them. So Jocelyn, what did you think about when you first heard the title of the book. And when we had that conversation about it and we all decided to read it again, or I was deciding to read it again and you guys were reading it for the first time and we were going to have this conversation. What were you thinking? It's funny. That conversation was almost a watershed moment. And I can remember exactly where we were in the studio and discussing it. And I think we kind of went off on a tangent probably for about an hour when we were supposed to be doing something else. And we started building on each other's <laughs> yeah. thoughts. Um, what I find it, and um, Pam had said the word comforting. So I think that in our culture, that the teenagers are, you know, gods and our lives are having our set up in a way, in some circumstances, having our kids, creating our career. And then somewhere around 40 and in the 50s, it's like, okay, so we've done that portion of our lives, but this book, this comforting book says, hey, 
you're just getting started. The good stuff is ahead of you. It's not behind you. You're not through. And if you have the open-mindedness and awareness, if someone's, you know, directed you that way, or you have this calling that the best, the best can be yet to come. And I think that this book particularly has so many different, really juicy points that are so, that just resonates so well. So maybe it's on this page, you said, oh my gosh, that makes sense. I mean, if you could see the book, I have so many pages that are that are marked because that made sense and oh, that makes sense. And wow, that's really going to help. And revisiting this book, you know, because we had originally read it months ago, once again, which we talked about before, the more you revisit it, the more your understanding of it, it it deepens. Mm -hmm. And, And I was hoping that when I read the book that I wasn't coming from a Jewish faith, that I wasn't missing some parts. I was, I thought, oh, maybe I don't understand that correctly, but I'm pretty sure that it's, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. Nice. And Pam, I know you said you also, you read it twice and then listened to the audio book and you had a different experience each time and kind of, it got richer and richer. It really every time. did. It really did because um, I read it the first time and, you know, I, I, I have to say it's not, I, I don't want to, I don't want to throw people off of it. It's not an an easy read as, you know, it's not like a beach read, right. Or, you know, you really have to, you have to sit down in a quiet place. And I literally took chapter by chapter over like, uh, you know, maybe one chapter a day, even though they're fairly short because they're very, it's, it's very meaty and there's a lot to think about. And then I went back and reread it because we had a, we were originally going to speak about it in November and, it was kind of like I uncovered another layer. And then just over the last few days, I just popped it on my audiobooks just to, you know, just to listen to as I was driving or walking or, you know, doing chores around the house, just to refresh myself. And I found it quite lovely that it's it's actually read by Richard Rohr, which is also comforting because he has a very comforting voice. And he's so genuine and authentic because it is his voice and his words. But listening to it is it gives you a whole other perspective. I mean, I guess that's mm. always true about books and audiobooks, but I just found it to be even more enriching to listen to it, you know, and having gone through it three times and picking up more nuances along the way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Jocelyn, to go back to your point of saying, you know, coming from your Jewish background, wondering, am I missing something or am I not getting something? And you at the end saying, no, I, I got it all. One of the things that I actually love about Richard is that he he pulls on so many different faith backgrounds. So when he's quoting things or he talks about things, he very often will bring in a completely different perspective from a different faith background because he's trying to make the point of there are these perennial truths, you know, things that are true are true in every faith. You know, there are these core things that every faith believes in and, and organizes around, and they may have different ways of expressing them, and they obviously put different practices around them, but at their core, there are some fundamental truths. And I think that is also a big comfort 
in, especially in this world that we're living in, where I think everyone feels so divided, you know, you can't have any real quote truth because it's all based on your perspective. I love how he weaves it together. He quotes the Dalai Lama very early in the book. And he says, the Dalai Lama is the one who said, you know that you have to know the rules well enough to know how to break them properly. Yes. <laughs> That's how he was setting up, you know, you need that structure in the first half of life because you have to know what the rules are because then in the second half of life, that's when you start to see, okay, and like, how do we really work with that rule to make it resonant with my life? And so I'm kind of curious, this is something I thought about recently. Have either of you ever heard this phrase, second half of life, when you were growing up or when you were going through your own religious upbringing or just in life in general? Like, I just don't, I don't recall ever hearing about that uh, myself growing up. And I don't even really recall hearing any conversation about separating your ego, right? Your false self from your true self. Like, I don't ever recall any of that being part of the conversation when I was growing up. Do you guys remember that? I never heard that before. No, I never heard that before. But I think we're almost maybe a little young for like the whole, I don't know, like I think of the 60s and 70s and finding your true self and false self when whether that's with hallucinogenics or whatever, I don't know. But that's, that's a whole other conversation. But uh, no, for sure not. The whole two halves of life, never heard of it. We recognize that in the Japanese culture, they honor their elderly and they they respect the wisdom that they have and they hold them, you know, in their in their hearts and, in, and and they take care of them, but you don't necessarily see that around the world. Um, mm-hmm. And no, it's an interesting question, Becky, because it was building and creating and running faster and creating this life. And then it was done. It was like, okay, oh, I've heard yeah. of midlife crises. That I've heard of. Right. Right. A good point. And I have to say, I think that most people, when they find themselves in this liminal transition space, right, when they're when they're crossing this spot from their first half of life to the second half of life, I think a lot of people think I'm just having a midlife crisis. Right. And that doesn't do it justice. It really doesn't because it doesn't take you deep enough. It really is like that's a surface skimmer, you know, like a midlife crisis idea. It's because you also think you're just going to grow out of it. Like, oh, I'll just move right on out of that. It, it doesn't sink you in. And what he really talks about a lot, and I just love this so much, he talks so much about how with real transformation, you have to include and transcend. Right. You can't miss this piece of include. You know, you start off with order. When we can think of our childhood as order, if you are lucky enough to have a childhood that was stable, and you had, you know, a good family structure or a good faith structure around you or what may be, that is a nice order. And then his point is you go to this point of disorder that's uncomfortable. And that's like that liminal space where we sit with discomfort and we're holding truths that live in tension and it's uncomfortable and you just want to get out of it. And a lot of people do, they'll jump right back to order as fast as they can because they don't want to be in that space. But you can't get to reorder unless you... You know, kind of sift through all the stuff and decide what you're going to bring forward with you and how you're going to fill that container. So I, I love how he talks about that and kind of really gets into why people don't come along and when you're there, why you might get tripped up. And, well, and uh, I almost think that like having, you know, hearing you comment on like, um, you know, a midlife crisis, like a midlife crisis is basically 
the start of you going into that transitory period, but maybe it's not recognizing that that's what it is. And it's like that sort of knee jerk reaction to like, oh my goodness, my life as I know it is over Mm -hmm. and I need to do something really drastic or buy a big red car or or whatever, you know, but it's like one reaction to that sort of transition phase, that feeling of being uncomfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, I never, I never thought of the fact that just living with it was, was okay. You know? Yeah living with this feeling is okay. And I think that was so much of the validation of the concept of the two halves of life and the liminal space in between, and also the book. And midlife crisis is negative, right? Yeah. There's, there's nothing positive after that. You have the crisis and then you're just screwed. Right. Yeah. yeah. The idea behind his book is that no, observe, take it in, learn from it and get to enjoy and move forward in your best way possible as a person in the second half of their life. Right. Yeah. Well said. You put a perfect point on that, Jocelyn, because that is the hope and the optimism that you do get from this book. Like you said, Pam, like when you read it or you heard about it, it was like, oh, like, oh, I'm not going to do something crazy here. This is not what this is about. This is about going through this process that's normal yeah. and and it doesn't have to be dramatic you right. know and 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 anything like that so and it's not about me going crazy either it's not about yeah. like yeah it's like nothing is wrong it's just a, a phase in life yeah. that you know yeah and like you said if you know that this is what it is it makes it easier to sit there it really does yeah and you don't have to do anything about it you just have to sit there and kind of take it in, which brings me to kind of two different points. Of, uh, there's so many different points and directions we could go because there's so many good nuggets in here. But he says this over and over again, that the most common one-liner in the Bible is do not be afraid. Mm-hmm. He said at some counts, some people count it that, he, that it's said 365 times. And I thought that was so interesting because I, mean, I can't even remember a song like from when I was growing oh, up. Be not that, afraid. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Be not afraid. Right. Exactly. Um, And even though, you know, we've heard it and we've sung it, you know, but it never sunk in really until I read this book and, and you're sitting in this kind of, you call it the dark night of the soul, you know, St. John of the cross, the mystic would call it the dark night of the soul. Like when you go through a time like that, you know, like Moses going up to the, to the top of the mountain and not knowing like, is, is God really there? Right. Jesus going out to the desert. Like I'm all on my own here. Like what's happening? These people, like, that's why they say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of entering this liminal space. That's like, it's where all the good stuff happens. It's what you said, Jocelyn, this is how you move on to like the really good stuff. And, and what I, what I also took away from that, he seems to reiterate is that it's it's sort of and I'm going to use I'm going to use grace as a non you know non-religious term but it's grace that moves you forward not your efforts not your planning like you have to let yourself be you have to become like as he discussed non-dualistic in your thinking you're kind of like a both and versus either or you have to become contemplative and sort of let it give it the opportunity to happen to you and guide you. And again, not in any, not in any way that speaks to any particular religion, but I think it's, it's just being 
being mindful and not pushing too hard. Yep, absolutely. I had an episode where I talk about a book that I read of his over the winter break called Everything Belongs. And in that book, he was saying, first of all, contemplation is not consoling. It is only real. And I wish I had known that at the beginning of my uh, liminal space, for lack of a better term, because I think that sometimes just everything we were just saying, you, you know, you can make the room and you can start to make the space and really start to get into some more contemplative practice, but it's, it takes time. And at first it's quiet and there's not a lot of comfort or answers that come in because you just kind of have to sit with the discomfort first. So living in that space of, of contemplative practices, you know, first off, it's not easy. It gets easier and then you get there. And I think that's a good lesson that he teaches over and over again in all of his, his writings. Absolutely. Yeah. I was having a thought and I'm not sure if it's a private thought, but it's a thought. I don't know if you remember this. We were sitting in, I'm going to say at your house, studio office, as our Mm. band was kind of dissipating together and I was in tears and we were sitting in the room with the piano and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. How am I going to move forward? And you said, you're going to, you're going to find it. It's going to happen. And I felt so, and this is now a few years back and I felt so lost. I remember thinking, oh, first of all, I'm not one to, I mean, I, I, I communicate um, joy all the time, but I'm not one to burden somebody else, even my closest friends with, with that part of me. And I remember feeling so badly that I had kind of unleashed that to you, but it was, it came from a conversation that we had and you said, you're going to find your way. And that was a, was a liminal spot for sure, which of course it does get better. And, and, and you do find it without even having to push, but without knowing that that liminal portion, it, it can be good if you can recognize, wow, I'm really kind of in between things and I'm really kind of feeling badly about this, but something good is going to happen. So maybe there's a way to not paint it black, but and to not have it feel so um, life uh, crushing. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's, if we can recognize earlier, there there's light there. There's something that's going to happen. And it's not, you know, sometimes situations are, so traumatic and and there should be holding that space for darkness but sometimes they just they do move you forward in that liminal space if the world could kind of understand that phrase or even if younger people like i mean there are there are high school kids i mean you can't even talk right now the pandemic is this liminal space yes yes and and we're all going through it. So, you know, we we do talk about this silver linings, but all this all this good stuff, if we can extract it, it's there. Well said. Well said. It leads me on a similar path of something he talks about. And so when you're talking about being in the space and and finding the light, you know, and knowing that something good can come out of it, not always easy. Related, though not totally in the exact same vein, but related, you know, I love when he gets into in in the book, he talks about the concept of sin as something that's not inherently bad. Yes. And he honestly, this was the first time I had heard someone really talk about sin in such a different kind of way. And so there are several things that he 
and not just in this book, but I think consistently talks about with sin and with organized religion, you know, I think he rightfully in my perspective and other people may disagree, but he says, you know, the, the church. And when he speaks of the church, he's speaking of the Catholic church because that's his, his faith denomination that they become very good sin managers. You know, they're managers of sin. You did, this is right. This is wrong. You should do this for penance. Da, da, da. They're not good at using sin as a transformative tool. And he talks about that in this book a lot. He's, I have a couple quotes that I love here. He says, we grow spiritually much more by doing it wrong than by doing it right. That must just be the eternal message of how spiritual growth happens. His point is like, sit in it. Like you're saying, Jocelyn, and, yes. and, and, you know, one of my episodes, I did talk about that time when our, you know, our band was coming apart and I talked about, you know, I could have done things differently. And it's, it's hard to sit in that space where things are feeling not right, or maybe you didn't do something exactly right, but to not be able to reflect back on it. If you, if you use it as a weapon, as something you should be punished for, you're not going to go back and really peel it apart and say, what was inside of that? You know, what, what can I learn from that? How can I grow from that? How can that make me a better person or change me? Or what does that tell me about a shadow side of myself that I don't want to see that I need to actually address? So I didn't know how that hit you guys. And I don't even know really in the Jewish faith, Jocelyn, if sin is, if, if it's such an emphasis, I know in the, in the Catholic faith, it's a big emphasis. <laughs> so I'm not sure in the Jewish faith, it's as big of an emphasis. So this may not have hit you in the same way, but I'm curious what you took from that. Uh, yes. I recognize sin as being uh, an idea that might fall more into a Christian category. I think that Judaism is filled with forgiveness. Um, we do atone on, and I'm by no means the ultra uh, person to answer these important questions, but there there are days of atonement and moments of atonement on the calendar, on the Jewish calendar. But sin, I associate more with, with confession and Catholicism. I did find that when he points that out about sin, I felt it was highly accurate that yes, we can learn from 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 failing, but sin doesn't necessarily have to be sin. It's all bad. Let's, you know, kind of learn from that. You know, we're human. And he talks about this also. He says, human beings, we are beings. Yeah. We are human and we are going through this life on our own, you know, train tracks, but we, we are all collectively um, here to make this world a better place. Becky, I've been, I'm sorry, I've been searching for a quote because I actually did underline, I thought I wrote it down and you can, oh, here we go. It was something like, I do not think that you should get rid of your sin until you've learned what it has to teach you. Otherwise it will only return in new forms. That was the idea of it is that it teaches you something and it, it informs who you become and it made me think, you know, his conversation about the, the sort of transformative power of sin makes me think of, you know, kind of the things that we tell our kids when some, they do something that is a mistake or they don't do well on a test is like, you know, the, the first question that I try to ask is like, what did you learn from it? And what are you going to do differently next time? 
and and how is this going to change you? And I think that, you know, he recognizes that and points that out is that, like you said, we are all human and of course we're going to sin, but it's what happens in response to that, that is really more defining. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think his whole, you know, he, he definitely holds up confession as, as a necessary practice for Catholics. That's the, you know, they believe it's a necessary practice because it, it forces you to unearth those shadow pieces. So it does, it doesn't allow you to sit on it. So, I mean, in a way that you can see why the practice got started, right? Like it's meant to be a tool to continue to help you excavate and excavate. But I think what his whole issue is, and he, he said, you know, we clergy have gotten ourselves into the job of sin management sin management instead of sin transformation, sin management yep. instead of sin transformation. Yes. Yeah. And and I think, you know, I do think that he's right there because I do. How often do you hear? Well, I guess I should rewind to say I I feel a lot of judgments around very, very religious or devout people. There feels like there's like a lot of judgment around things. It's there's the right way to do it, there's the wrong way to do it. It goes back to what you were saying, Pam, about that dualistic thinking. Mm-hmm. You, you have to be able to break yourself of that and believe that there are shades of gray and that the shades of gray are, yes. are just as necessary as what sits on either end of them. Yes, life is not black and white for sure ever. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that it's that whole part about sin, it's in his chapter, The Tragic Sense of Life. And that's the chapter that all of that's in. It's so great. And I have two other quotes I love of him. One is he says, if there is such a thing as human perfection, it seems to emerge precisely from how we handle the imperfection mm-hmm. that is everywhere, especially our own. What a clever place for God to hide his holiness so that only the humble and earnest will find it. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Beautiful. Really good. Really good. And then I just, this just made me giggle. And I think he makes me laugh sometimes. He's funny. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's funny. And so this is another good one, which I think people can relate to. But he said, he said, people who have no inner struggles are invariably both superficial and uninteresting. We tend to endure them more than communicate with them because they have little to communicate. That's funny. It is funny. It's true though. It's like, but it's right on. Yeah. Yeah. It's right on, right? Like, what is there to say to someone who has all the answers and who knows exactly what's right and knows exactly what's wrong? And that's so uninteresting. He just nailed yeah. it so perfectly in that line. I thought, oh, wow. Like, he, he is an astute observer of human nature and who we are as people. He really is. And there's so much of that in the world right now that it's just... It's spot on, right? Totally, totally, completely spot on. Okay, so we have to talk about the loyal soldier. Yes. So there's a concept that he sets up in this book about the loyal soldier and the imperative that it really must be decommissioned to find inner authenticity and, and have an inner growth. He talks about how that can rub up against our required adherence to doctrine of any faith, no matter what it is, because... And he says, there are few in our religious culture who understand the necessity of mature, internalized conscience. And his point with the loyal soldier is he says, basically, it's the voice of all of your early authority figures. It's the person or institution or whatever that either shamed you, guilted you, warned you, 
you know, put boundaries there or maybe inserted some self-doubt into your head so that you wouldn't get so mm -hmm. big, you know, like all the things that happen when you're in first half of life and you're trying to mold your, you know, your children or your, whoever you're influencing and helping them create this container. He's like the loyal soldier. Like that's an important mm -hmm. character for the first half of life. He's got to help keep you in check, but it's so fascinating to think about when you cross over into the second half of life, you actually have to say goodbye to the loyal soldier. And so I just want to know, he says the loyal soldier cannot get you to the second half of life. He doesn't even understand it. And I thought, Ooh, I love that part about the loyal soldier. So I'm curious, like, how did that section land with you guys? Did it resonate? I really do think, yeah, I, I completely agree with it because you have to say, you know, you have to, what did he say? You have to discharge the loyal soldier mm -hmm. and that you, you, you know, you may confuse his or her voice with the voice of God or the voice of universe or, or the voice of a greater power, but it's not. It's all those things that you said, like all the voices that you've heard in your lifetime telling you how to be, what to do, how to take care of yourself, um, how to build this vessel for yourself. Having said that, I do believe that the, the loyal soldier is, is hard to discharge. Yeah. Like I find myself struggling with it. And I think it does take like, it takes the willingness to be contemplative. So it takes the willingness and the ability to be quiet and, and to listen and not necessarily to prejudge or plan or, you know, you know, that idea of grace moving you forward. You have to just, you have to, you have to sort of let that soldier go. Yeah. So hard. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. What did you think about it, Jocelyn? I think that there are tenants in that, that are essential for a foundation of proper, or ethical morality. On page 44, they also talk about, if I can just read this, they say, Japanese communities created a communal ritual whereby a soldier who publicly thanked and praised effusively for his service to the people, and then they would go through this process of closure where they would say, discharging your loyal soldier, this kind of closure is much needed for most of us at the end of all major transitions in life, mm -hmm. because we have lost any sense of the need for such rites of passage. If we were to learn somehow in whether it be, you know, some people experience such huge life transitions at younger ages and they become more mature and whether it's losing a parent or being confronted with something that's just so, um, that an adult situation that can be discharging their loyal soldier at that age. But if we acknowledge that there should be some kind of ceremony and honoring of that helped you, and now you get to move forward, whether you're 20 years old or whether you're 50 years old, or I don't know, 70 years old, it's something in your life that's changed that you can let go of, honor it, let go of, and then move on different components yeah, of your life absolutely, yeah. to help you be your best person. And I think, you know, you hit on a thing where you hit on something where you talked about rites of passage and he gets into this in the um, little pamphlet book that he sells about liminal space and liminality. Uh, quite a few people in that pamphlet and that booklet talk about rites of passage, how, you know, native cultures 
really had a lot of ritual and rites of passage for this very reason. They they recognized that you had to go through these life phases. And it wasn't just for the young, it was for the old as well as for every stage of your life and how in, in our Western culture, we're so ritual deprived. We're so rites of passage deprived. We just don't. We are. Yeah. We just don't do it. We don't. Yeah. And I think as a, as adults, certainly once you, it's almost like once you get married, that's almost like the right is over. Like that's your last rite of passage until, I don't know, you could call having children a rite of passage, but it doesn't feel quite the same. You are passing into something else, but it's, there's no ceremony around it. And even if there is a baby naming or a bris or a baptism or what, whatever there may be, that's really more about the child and welcoming that child into that faith tradition. It's not really about you. But I do think that, you know, losing a parent, for me, that was a huge rite of passage because I really felt yeah. like, I really felt like I had not been fully, not a full human being until I experienced that, that loss. You know, and, and it, like different cultures, different religions have different ceremonies, rituals that go around sort of the loss of a parent. But I, I really do feel that that is, that's transformational, mm-hmm. you know, it really is. And, and, and there was something that he said, you know, again, he talks about life is necessary suffering, which is a whole other conversation to have, but the idea that, you know, that the pain of grief like that can somehow be joyful. It's hard to, it's hard to describe it as that, but like, I just remember, I just remember when my father passed, um, almost 20 years ago, it was like the most raw pain that I had ever experienced, but it was also the most pure emotion I had ever experienced. I mean, much more than having a child, you know, it really, it really was an intense um, experience of humanity. Yep. I, completely agree with you. I had the same experience when my, when my father passed away a couple of years ago. It, you just said it perfectly. It's the most pure experience of emotion. If you, if you allow it, yes. you know, if you really allow yourself to go there. And again, this is so much of what the book talks about. It's going into those spaces that you would rather not go to. Right. And Richard Rohr talks about that. People generally will not come to these spaces willingly they're usually brought to them either from great love or from great sorrow. And I think when you lose someone, it's both of those things combined. So it is like a super powerful punch to get you in there. Right. And it does. I, I, I remember David, I think it was David Brooks said something about losing a parent, you know, or losing a child or having some major, you know, loss close to you that it carves out a, like a basic, basically like a sub basement in your emotions that you didn't even know was there. Like right. you didn't even know you had this depth there yes. until this event happened and it just carved it right out. And he said, but the most amazing thing about it is that it creates a mirror of a mountain on the other side. So it's like, now you, you have so much more space. Like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. You can hold that much sorrow and it's more sorrow and more pure sorrow than you ever thought you could feel. But at the same time, and I definitely felt this when my father passed, I I was like, I hit a zenith of love that I also had never hit before. And it was so, 
it's like goes back to that holding two truths in tension, right? Like how can both of those things exist at once? Yes. And if you, if you will allow yourself to sit in that space, just like we're talking about with sitting in this liminal space, if you allow it to happen, like that's the kind of magic, that's the kind of stuff you can feel. Yep. Yes. Well, what else can we say about this book? We've been talking for almost an hour. I feel like I, there are so many other things. I, we barely scratched the surface, but. I do have to, one thing I do have to comment is on that really, really resonated with me is this idea of homesickness. Oh, yes. Because that's one of the emotions that I was really feeling over the last couple of years. You know, I would even find myself just thinking in my head, I just want to go home. Yeah. And I would, I'd be standing in my house, you know, and I'd be thinking, what am I talking about? What, where, what am I thinking of as home? And I was thinking of my childhood home, thinking about my parents. It's like, what am I thinking of? And, and, you know, that home is, it's really your, your soul. Yeah. It's, it's like a homing device. He says, we are sent forth and drawn back by the same force. And, you know, he describes it as the, the deep homesickness that you can sometimes come to feel in this, you know, space between the two halves of life. Yeah. So it just, that really, that really struck me as like, it's just like you're, you're being called home to yourself, mm-hmm. which is kind of, it's mind boggling, but it's profound. Completely profound. I, I'm, I'm giving you a huge smile because in my notes here, I wrote the whole chapter on home and homesickness. So much to say, yeah. three <laughs> exclamation points. <laughs> so much. I, I so much to say because that feeling, yeah, without question, I felt the same thing. And it's, it's a, a restlessness yeah. of. Yes, restless. Like I'm so unsettled and I feel so unsettled and I just, I want to just be home which even saying the word sounds comforting and whole and complete and calm and loving. And I just want to be home. Yeah. That chapter yeah. said a lot to me as well. I think it resonates with people who are going through this. I think that was one of my favorite chapters, chapter seven, the one on homesickness really. Yeah. Was there anything else, Jocelyn, that you wanted to get in before we wrap it up? There's so much to discuss. I just hope that everyone can, you know, and once again, this is not a light read, but it's so inspiring. And I hope that people take the time maybe to order it or to um, listen, listen to it and, and, and get there. If, If you are finding yourself in that kind of lost spot, or you just want to, you just want to know what the heck we're talking about. I would highly suggest this book. Yes. And thank you, Becky, for suggesting it to, yes. to us, for sure. Oh, well, I'm so glad that you guys read it in, with open arms and were excited or, well, were willing to do this book conversation with me. And I know you actually were excited to do it. So, yes. If this is what you're looking for, I feel like you will know it mm-hmm. from this conversation that we've had because Jocelyn and I both knew it from the the conversation that the three of us had last fall. And I think it's funny, like Richard Rohr even says, as you go through the chapters, he's like, if you're still with me now, you know, in (laughs) chapter nine, I know, I know where you are in your journey. And it was really, you know, it's, it's very insightful. Yeah, it is. I think I'm going to wrap it up with some of his closing lines here. 
I know you guys have your books, so I'll tell you it's on page 160. We're all following along for those of you listening at home. We're, we've been flipping our books and comparing notes on what we underlined, and we had a lot of very similar underlines. But at the end of the book, he, he says the following, which I think is a great way to end it. He says, your second journey is all yours to walk or to avoid. My conviction is that some falling apart of the first journey is necessary for this to happen. So do not waste a moment of time lamenting poor parenting, lost job, failed relationship, physical handicapped, gender identity, economic poverty, or even the tragedy of any kind of abuse. Pain is part of the deal. If you don't walk into the second half of your own life, it is you who do not want it. God will always give you exactly what you truly want and desire. So make sure you desire, desire deeply, desire yourself, desire God, desire everything good, true, and beautiful. And I love that. I love that too. Amen. Amen. There we go. I would love to hear what you thought of today's show. Did you get something valuable from it? If so, don't keep it a secret. Tell your friends and family. I want everyone to unleash their soul song because the world needs all our beautiful music. I'd also really appreciate if you subscribe to the show on iTunes, rate and review. You may not realize it, but that's the best way to help other people find the show. I hope you'll come visit with me at theintuneexperience.com. While you're there, download your free copy of Intune Insights, designed to inspire you to unleash your soul song. I'd also love to hear from you on Instagram at Unleash Your Soul Song. Shoot me a message. Let me know. What'd you think about the show? Tell me what you want to hear about and what you're struggling with so that I can craft shows that provide you with insights, inspiration, and the tools you need to venture on your own personal journey. Listen, this world is busy. Our days are really full and life is super distracting. We're pulled in so many different directions every day. And so I thank you for joining me here today. Have a great week. You and me, you and me, he and she, he and she, next door neighbor, stranger down the street, form a chain, form a chain, grab the clouds, grab the clouds, cause we haven't even touched our highest ground. No, we haven't even touched our highest ground. Unleash Your Soul Song is recorded and edited in 426 Studios, the music production company that I co-own. For more information about our music and our services, please visit www.four26studios.com. That's www.four26studios.com.